Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Well, if you weren't here last week, you missed uh, an awesome message from Doug, so I'd encourage you to uh, hop online and catch up with that. Uh, today is, I'm, I'm excited to be back up here with you guys. It's a bit of a busy day for me. Uh, some of you know that I've been trying to uh, better my ability to work here, and I've been taking some courses through uh, Briarcrest, and um, I do these modular week classes, so I'm leaving today for one. The class this week is like a 700-level class on the book of Isaiah, um, and it's been cool for me in my pre-course work. I've been reading a ton of stuff, uh, some pretty intense books by uh, some guys who are really smart and probably dead, and uh, so this Old Testament dictionary and stuff like that. It's been cool for me because I used to uh, think, like Isaiah, it's 66 chapters. I used to think it was just this big, intimidating, overwhelming, super confusing book, uh, but spending the last few weeks in it, uh, it has confirmed that it is way more confusing and overwhelming than I ever thought so before. So uh, I'm uh, probably going to have a rough week in class this week, uh, maybe coming back more confused about the Bible than I went, but I hope it's awesome and excited to continue to uh, f- find some more things I can share with you guys. Um, I, uh, some of you have maybe been wondering, uh, you know, why do we have all these uh, guns up here and stuff like that for our artwork? Uh, you know, uh, probably a lot of you are like, why wouldn't the artwork just, instead of those guns, just be like pictures of Doug and me up here flexing, you know, showing the real gun show? And those laughs right there are exactly the reason why not. It would just not make any sense for there to be a picture of Doug up here like that. So, um, <laughs> the... Uh, it's actually uh, kind of cool for me as I've been thinking about this series. I love the opportunity we have to just open up the Bible, read some things that Jesus taught, and unpack it. I mean, we do some different series here at FPC, and I love it all, but this is one of my favorite things. So just open up one of the Gospels, be like, man, Jesus said this thing, kind of dropped this truth bomb. What does that mean for us in 2018 in Western Canada? And it's actually a, a funny theme for a series, uh, Shots Fired, and have all these guns, because... Um, If you read Matthew 10, uh, there's actually this interesting story. Jesus came and he said a lot of things that weren't what people were expecting or hoping for. And he was a lot of things that weren't what people were hoping or expecting for. People had read the Old Testament prophets and heard the Messiah will be uh, the Prince of Peace and things like that. And Jesus in Matthew 10, he actually says, he makes a statement. He's like, uh, you know, don't think I've come to bring peace. I haven't come to bring peace, but he says, I've come to bring a sword. He's like, I'm coming with a sword. And he goes on to say, he's like, I'm going to break up families. Like, I'm going to separate, like, you know, father and son. Like, it's going to mess things up. And you read that, you're like, what kind of a savior is this? This sounds violent and brutal. And I don't want to overstate this too much, but it's actually kind of funny reading that passage because I'm like, I really think that's almost like the 2,000-year-old version of Jesus doing a sermon series called Shots Fired. You know, they didn't have guns back then. But he's saying this kind of thing. And a lot of what Jesus did was pretty, like, inflammatory and cut deep. But all of it to say, you know, I'm going to come and I'm going to, you know, shoot them some things up. I'm going to stab at some things. I'm going to break some things up. But I'm going to offer you something so much better than what you had before. 
And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 10. And so this morning, in a few minutes, we're going to be looking at some scripture in Matthew 18. I'll let you know what we're doing this morning. We're going to look at some a passage in Matthew 18, and then we're going to hop over to Luke 6. Um, for youth, um, da- uh, Darren was speaking on this stuff at youth this past week, so you have to, or get to hear it again. I don't know, you get to hear a lesser version of it from me. Uh, Darren killed it at youth this week. Um, but like I said, we're going to move over to Luke 6, and from each of these passages, we're going to pull out what I like to call maybe like a bottom line or takeaway for today. So if you're using the uh, app notes or the bulletin or whatever, there's some stuff in there that you can use. Um, in Matthew 18, I'll give you a little bit of an idea what's going on. Uh, Jesus, like I said, he says he's going to bring a sword, and he's going to like mess things up and kind of like do some things that in our culture or in the culture of the day when he was speaking uh, seem really negative. He says, I'm going to replace that with something better. And it's interesting because in Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about unity in the church. Jesus comes and he starts this movement called the church. He's like, we have a bunch of followers. We're going to do this thing together. It's a big community. It's going to be called the church. It's going to last forever. It's going to be amazing. It's going to change the world. But he's like, there has to be unity. And some of his listeners are probably like, wait, aren't you the sword guy? You know, like you're talking about the sword. Like you're going to like, and Jesus says, yeah, like I'm going to break up the superficial and give you something that's supernatural. I'm going to break that up, what you guys are clinging to, and I'm going to give you something so much better. So anyways, uh, if you want, uh, you can follow along on the screens, the app, your phone, the Bible, whatever. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Um, verse 21 and 22 is where we're actually going to arrive for our shots fired for this week. Um, but we're going to start in verse 15 just to, to create a little bit of context. It starts off, he says, If your brother or sister sins, go ahead, or go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Great. That would be really ideal. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, check this out. If they refuse to listen, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I want you to turn to one of your neighbors and say, oh, savage. That was pretty weak. Okay. Okay. don't worry. Some of you are like, man, this is three weeks in a row of the same thing, our neighbor thing. I, I think it'll run out sometime. I don't know. Anyways, hopefully that's not the new normal. Said savage because our shots fired are coming up. So Jesus is saying, uh, I care about unity, but people are going to mess up. You guys need to call each other out on stuff. It's like you got to go confront some people. We're scared. A lot of us are scared of confrontation or conflict. Some of us are too eager for confrontation and conflict. That's maybe a problem too, but we're scared of it. We're thinking, you know, like if I go like say, hey, you know, here's something you need to work on or think about. That's like offensive. But Jesus teaches, and I believe it's so true, that one of the best ways to establish unity and to build community and foster good relationships is through some confrontation and some healthy conflict. I mean, in love, you need to go up to people and say, hey, listen, you did this thing. It, it hurt me. It maybe hurt those people. And just say, I, I think we can do better. I'm trying to help you grow here. And, and so this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying unity is so important that you need to be willing to have those uncomfortable conversations and go up to someone and say, hey, listen, man, like you're, you're kind of off base here. So then he continues on. And he says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two, or two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with, there I am with, or them, there am I, wow, where two or three gather, Ryan can read. Okay, there am I with them. Nailed it. Um, so uh, there's a lot going on in these few verses, and this is like, 
there's some passages where like all churches and Christians pretty much agree. This is one where like, this is like different denominations of churches exist based on this. And I don't want to gloss over it, um, but this isn't where we're headed this morning. So I'm not going to spend too much time there. If you want to come talk about this idea of binding and loosing, what that means, love to talk to you about it some other time. But for sure, what's happening here is Jesus is pointing against this idea of unity in the church. He's saying, you know, you're supposed to do this in community. I think a lot of times we think, you know, I don't need to go to church. I can kind of do this faith thing on my own and read my Bible maybe, uh, pray. You know, I, I just need Jesus. And that's kind of true, but really Jesus is saying this should be done with others, so even two or three. And this two or three thing isn't just to make you feel good about like that prayer meeting or that small group that you have that has poor attendance, right? It's like, well, we have two or three, so Jesus said that's really, you know. Uh, but Jesus is saying unity in the church is so important, and we're going to continue on into verses 21 and 22. And this shot fired this week at face value maybe doesn't seem as intense of a shot fired, uh, but as we unpack it, I think it digs deeper uh, than a lot of things. Uh, so it continues on and it says, then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And for the last time this morning, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, shots fired. Thanks. That saves Doug and me a couple seconds of preaching every week if you do that. So um, anyways, let's pray and then we're going to hop into this passage. God, thank you so much for your word and thank you that uh, your teachings, even though they're tough, they have so much value and that they all uh, are there to help us draw closer to you and know what it means to honor you and to serve you, God. I pray that uh, it would just be you that speaks this morning and that we would understand uh, where you're trying to lead us, God. We love you so much. Amen. Okay, so when we get to Matthew 18, we're like kind of, ha like we're in the middle of kind of the information we have about Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean the middle of his life chronologically, because we have a lot more information from kind of the last few years of his life. But as far as the information we have in the New Testament, this is about the middle. Where Doug was at last week was kind of the closer to the end, like right before Jesus dies. But this is kind of the middle. It's around where I was two weeks ago, around uh, that teaching. And so what, what's happening is Jesus has already taught his followers a lot of things. He's taught them that they should be compassionate and generous, give to those who are in need. He's taught them that uh, they should be the salt and light of the world, that they should take this message, they should love people, they shouldn't be condescending jerks, uh, that kind of stuff. He's taught them a lot of things, that they should extend mercy and grace. And we get to this part where he's teaching about unity, and then Peter... Uh, shows up and asks this question. Now, Peter is like, he's awesome. He gets a bad rep sometimes, but I, I think a lot of that is because he's, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of like the spokesperson for the disciples in the story of Jesus. So, you know, I imagine that when Peter asks something or says something dumb or says something dumb, he's not the only one thinking it. It's probably the disciples have been chatting and stuff, and Peter's like, fine. You know, it's, it's great to have someone like Peter in your friend group, right? That person, you're all thinking it, and that one person who's willing to say it, right? You know, they're like, they'll speak up and they'll say what everyone's thinking. This is, uh, it's really helpful because then after that, you can respond based on like what you see happen. Then you can like respond and pretend you were on one side or the other, right? It's like when my sister and I were young, uh, if we want to ask our parents something, we were scared. It was really good if my sister would ask. Because if my sister would like go and ask and say, hey, mom, can we go to the neighbor's house and play? If my mom's response was like, yes, I'd love for you to. I was hoping you guys would ask. I'd be like, yeah, I told her to ask. It was my idea, mom. Like, you're welcome. Uh, you know, I'm the one that's kind of like in tune with where you're at. Um, or else if she was like, mom, can we go over to the neighbor's house to play? Uh, then if my mom was like, why are you even asking that? You know, like, you know, you have chores to do. And she gets angry. Then I could be like, mom, I, know, I told her that. I was like yelling, angel, don't ask, mom. That's, I, actually, I'm only here 
because I wanted to see if there were some more chores I could do. I mean, that kind of thing. So I could kind of pretend. I, I love Peter because he just says it. And the other disciples, I think they can just sit back and just be like, wait till Jesus responds and be like, oh yeah, for sure. Like, that's what I thought too. But so Jesus, Peter comes up to Jesus. And he says, uh, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Uh, up to seven times. And so it's hard to know what Peter is thinking. A lot of scholars believe that what's going on is that the, uh, the ancient Jewish rabbis would teach that uh, you're supposed to forgive someone up to three times. So, you know, you give kind of three strikes and you're out. The Jewish rabbis would be like, you give them three forgives, and then after that, you're kind of off the hook. Uh, you know, it's kind of like spiritual baseball, but like for, you know, religion back in the first century, okay? A um, bit of a leap there. But uh, so I wonder if Peter's sitting there and he's thinking, okay, you know, I've seen like the rabbis are teaching this. Jesus is a different kind of teacher. He's a different kind of rabbi. He seems to always take things to the next level. So he's like thinking, okay, three. You know, that's a lot of my fingers right now. That's a lot of real estate on my hand. He's like, you know, what if I did like two of those? But he's a, good, he's a good Jewish boy, so he's like, Hebrew, number six, ah, maybe it's not the best number, so seven? It's a lot, like, I'm running out of fingers here. So I, I picture him going up to Jesus and just being like, Jesus, look at all of these fingers. I will forgive for every single one of these. Like, check me out, Jesus. I am, like, just more than, like, twice as good as what the rabbis are teaching. You know? And, and he comes up with this huge number. And what's Jesus say? He says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. This is a pretty intense response to, to Peter. I mean, when someone asks me a question and they're just way off base, I try generally to soften the blow a little bit rather than to just look at them in the eyes and be like, you are completely wrong, you moron. Uh, rather than say that, I'm usually like, yeah, you know, I, I can see how you arrived at that idea, but let me fill in some. And Jesus is just like, Peter, you're so wrong. He's like, you're way off base. Not seven times, but 77 times. Some of you probably grew up with like King James in your Bible or, or King James Bible in your house or NASB or NLT. Those ones say 70 times seven. So that's like, for those of you who don't love math, that's 490 times. So 77, 490, both huge numbers, right? And so maybe some of you have read that before and you're like, well, you know, I read that and my spouse is currently at 493 offenses. So like, I'm out, right? Like, I'm done, right? And Jesus is like, man, Peter, you don't get it. Forgiveness, my mercy, my grace that I extend to you isn't about a number. It's not a numerical value. It's about love. See, Peter's asking the wrong category of question. It's kind of like if someone asks you what the color blue tastes like, right? Like, that's not how we respond to colors. We respond to them by what they look like. And Jesus is saying, you're looking at forgiveness, my mercy, and grace on like a numerical, mathematical level, but it's a spiritual thing. It's a theological idea, not some kind of a numerical thing. And he's just saying, Peter, you're so wrong. It's not about a number. He increases the number, but that is to say, Peter, unlimited forgiveness is what you need to have. And like Barry said earlier, we only forgive because Jesus has forgiven us. I think a lot of times we think, you know, at some point I became a Christian, I started following Jesus, and now I, like, read the Bible and I just do the things it says, and I muster up goodness in and of myself, I forgive, I do this, I do. and anything good you do, when you forgive someone, it's not because you are such an awesome, compassionate saint, it's because God's goodness and mercy and grace, which is so unending, flows through you and empowers you to forgive someone. 
That's really all it is. So I want to take a second to turn our eyes to Jesus and look at what we're responding to because when we think about forgiveness, it's not about an act that we muster up enough strength for, but forgiveness is just a reflection or, or an outpouring of God's grace flowing through us to other people. Jesus is so loving and so perfect and so compassionate to us. His teachings are hard. They're tough at face value. I mean, last week, Doug, if you weren't here, Doug was talking about uh, John um, 14, 6, and where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And then he says, no one, not a single person comes to the Father except through me. That's an intense statement. And when we hear that, we say, Jesus, that's so exclusive. Why would you cut out everyone else? Why are the other religions or the other ideas not good enough? Why do you have to be so exclusive to say that you are the only way? And we hear that as exclusive, but I don't actually think that's an exclusionary statement. If you think about it, I think Jesus' tough teachings, his hardest hitting ones, are usually such a vivid expression of his infinite love. Because that statement by Jesus is actually an inclusionary statement. What he's doing is he's responding to the reality that there is no way for us to muster up up enough goodness or righteousness or whatever we want to think in and of ourselves to grant us access to have relationship with the God who created the universe. And Jesus compassionately looks at that and says, not out of exclusivity, but out of inclusivity, I want to include them and extend to them the opportunity and the invitation to experience my love and goodness. Wow. Like, it's not like he's sitting, like, on his throne in heaven and felt obligated to come and create another path for us. He's sitting there, he's saying, they're hopeless, and I will go and create the only path that will actually work. The Bible says that it's a narrow path, and Jesus opens it up for this. Without him, there's just no path. I mean, uh, I think about this in these terms. Uh, there's a horrible disease in our world that's called cancer. I'm sure all of us have been impacted by cancer in one way or another through family members or personally or whatever. It's brutal. Killed my grandma a year and a half ago. And, you know, we have treatments for cancer, right? But we all know that none of them really work. I mean, there's some things that kind of work and, you know, and hold it at bay, but it's not like we have, like, the cure. My grandma, she went through a bunch of chemo and radiation and then died. And you kind of look back and you think, man, like, I actually don't know if it's worth it going through that. It was awful. You know, so much collateral damage. It, it hurt her so much along the way and ultimately didn't cure it. If someone showed up and they actually came up, discovered with a, a cure for cancer, it's like this will eradicate the disease in your body. It will have no negative side effects. Just clean bill of health, clean slate, cancer-free forever. That would be amazing. But if they showed up and said, this is the cure for cancer, what are we going to do? We're not going to be like, oh, my goodness, I'm so offended. What do you have against radiation and chemo? You know, what do you have against amputating parts of our body? We would say, wow, thank you. I'm so glad that there's actually a way. Jesus' statements, Jesus' teachings, they're tough. But when you really let them sink in, they're such a vivid expression of his love and goodness. Not that Jesus is exclusive, but that he's inclusive. Us here on earth, we, there's no reason that we deserve to be able to come to the Father. So when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, he's not saying, oh, you know, this is like a negative statement. He's saying, you're welcome. Like, this is, this is possible now. I, I'm going to move on. Doug already preached about that last week. Uh, Luke 15, uh, another example of this. Jesus is hanging out with um, sinners. Like, these religious people, they come up and they say, Jesus, you're hanging out with sinners. You're hanging out with bad people. Like, you're hanging out with a bad crowd. What, what's wrong with you? And Jesus is like, man, I love hanging out with sinners because they need 
They need to experience grace and forgiveness. You know, he makes a statement one time. He's like, it's the sick that need a doctor. And he goes on to tell these three parables about his view of us as sinners. Because we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with brokenness. And he tells these three parables in Luke 15. You've probably heard them. The first one, it's um, about the shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. We're the sheep. He's got a hundred sheep. Shepherd's got a hundred sheep. One leaves. And Jesus is like, uh, what does the shepherd do? He asks this question. And I'm so glad I wasn't there because... Uh, I don't, I'm a city kid. I don't know anything about farming or agriculture or anything. I'm thinking, let the one go, cut your losses, and hang out with the 99, right? You know, because you go after the one, you come back, and there are only like 94 left. It's like you're worse off. But Jesus says, no, the good shepherd goes, pursues, finds the lost sheep, brings them back, and he's got 100 again. And then he goes on to say, and then he gets all his neighbors. He's like, guys, I found my lost sheep. I'm so pumped. You know, I can take down the, like, missing sheep signs in the neighborhood and stuff like that. I'm so stoked. Get together. Let's have a party. They probably kill the sheep and eat it anyway, so they're down to 99 anyways. But they have a party, and they celebrate. He's so excited that what was lost is now found. Even though the sheep had gone astray. I mean, the sheep had acted improperly. The sheep was the one that, like, left, ran away. But Jesus pursued him out of love. The next parable, Jesus talks about this woman who has 10 coins. He's the woman where the coins, she has 10 silver coins and she loses one. And so what's she do? She goes into that mode that your mom goes into when company's coming over, you know, like just rips the house apart, cleans everything, corner to corner, like, you know, there's like a speck of dust even within 20 feet of the house, you know, and she finds this coin. She comes back, she's like, I got the coin, calls her neighbors together. She's like, guys, come rejoice, come have a party. I'm so excited, we need to celebrate that I found this coin. Probably spends the coin throwing the party, but whatever, you know? And then the last one is this parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, as you guys know. Uh, and, and what Jesus is saying is there's this son, and he goes up to his dad, and he says, dad, I want my inheritance now, which is a, the equivalent of saying, dad, I wish you were dead, because I want your money, and I don't care about a relationship. He just wants the money, he wants to leave. It's a crazy statement. I haven't tried it out yet, but, uh, you know, thinking about it. So um, I'm, jo- I'm joking. I like my dad. Okay, uh, so he gets the dad's cash, and he leaves. And this guy, this kid, if you read the story, he goes out, and he squanders the money on hookers and on partying and stuff like that. He ends up homeless. He's feeding pigs. It's brutal. He's, he's lost. He's hopeless. So he comes crawling back to his dad. He's like, Dad, like, I, I really screwed up. And his dad's like, yeah, like, I, I've noticed. You smell like a pig. Um, you look filthy. But what's his dad do? Does he condemn him? He forgives him. The story goes on. He just runs out into the field, wraps his arms around him in love, welcomes him back. He says, I love you so much. He says, let's throw a party. Let's celebrate. Kills a fatted calf, and they uh, have a party, and they celebrate. So what we learn from Luke 15 is Jesus loves to party, you know? I'm just kidding. My name's Jesus. I like to party. No. Um, Jesus pursues us even when we're wrong. It's not that he's just willing to extend forgiveness when we come back, but he, he, he seeks after us. It's incredible. God's love is so big, and it calls us to one action, that's to love others. We were saying the song, How He Loves Earlier. It's such a great song, and it has this line where it says, if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. This idea of God's grace being so big that if you were to hop into it, you would just drown. It's immeasurable the depths. And I love it because in another in line says, you know, uh, we're drawn to redemption through the grace in his eyes. It's not just that Jesus, when we come to him and say, I'm sorry, he's like, okay, well, you know, we got to think. It's not like he digs deep down and finds grace. His grace, he looks at us with his grace and compassion and, 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 and pursues reconciliation with us. That's incredible. I mean, I've, I've screwed up so many times to think that God still looks at me like that. 
it begs the question, what does that mean for how I treat others? 1 Corinthians 13 says that God's love keeps no record of wrongs. You know, you mess up, you forgive. Or you mess up, you repent, he forgives. He's not keeping a tally sheet. And that's the problem. Is Jesus saying, Peter, the problem here with what you're asking is that you're still counting. You're, you're, you're tallying up people's, you know, people's mistakes. I think the bottom line we can take away from Peter is that if you're still counting, your forgiveness doesn't count. You know, Peter's saying, Jesus, how many times? And Jesus is like, I don't care what the number is. Make the number two. And when you forgive them, then start back at zero. Just reset. Clean slate them. It's, it is so hard. This is a tough teaching. For us to clean slate someone, and when I say us, I mean us. I mean, I struggle with that. Someone screws up. Someone does something to bug me, even when they're just so wrong. Oh, to forgive them? Oh, man, that's, that is... That's uncomfortable. I, I, hate, I hate this teaching, you know, like in the sense that it is so difficult. And Jesus is saying, Peter, you got to get rid of the tally sheet, man. He's like, you don't understand that grace is not about a number. And I will quickly say, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I think there is, we have to understand always that there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, reconciliation is a two-way street. Forgiveness is a one-way street. You know, Jesus, in this story, he's being nailed to the cross, and he says, God, forgive them for what they're doing. Um, and he forgives them, but they're not reconciled, because it's not like the guy was like, oh, he forgave us, brought the cross down, and pulled the nail. It'd be a really different story, right? Um, so there's no reconciliation. That's a two-way street, and that, that happens sometimes, you know? But what's on you is forgiveness. And I, but I think sometimes we use that as an excuse, like, maybe you've heard people in churches say, you know, God says I have to love him, doesn't mean I have to like him. And I, I think there's maybe some merit to those kinds of statements, but it's like, I think we hide behind that as an excuse. It's like, I have to forgive them, but I don't have to reconcile. And if we're not pursuing reconciliation, then I think what we're usually doing is missing the heart of what God's forgiveness is about, that he wants to redeem relationships and restore, and he can restore anything. I heard an incredible story during a pre-service prayer about uh, the story of reconciliation in his family. It's nothing short of miraculous. And we don't promote being in abusive or unsafe situations here at FBC, but also understand that Jesus took a lot of abuse. He took a lot of abuse for us. You know, he was, he was like beat up, not just physically, but people were jerks to him. People sinned against him all the time. We continue to sin against him. He takes a lot of abuse. And sometimes I think we're a little intolerant in that, you know? Again, I'm not telling you to be in an abusive situation, but like, I think sometimes we need to, I don't know, we maybe need to consider how Jesus would actually, would Jesus say, I forgive you and run away, or would he forgive and would he try to reconcile? Probably he'd usually try to reconcile. And you might be sitting there and saying, Ryan, you have no idea, though. You have no idea what that person did to me, what that person says to me. You don't know what my ex did. You don't know what my spouse says. And you're right. I have no idea what they did or said. And you can come tell me. That's fine. But I, I don't know what they did. But without knowing that, what I do know is what Jesus did for you and what Jesus has done for you. And he died on a cross for you to offer you unlimited grace and forgiveness for any sin you've ever committed. And he also did that for that other person. So it begs the question, why are you still hanging on to their sins? Why are you counting when Jesus isn't? I think a lot of the times why we carry around bitterness and frustration is that we hold people to just an impossible standard. You know, it's so easy to carry around anger and, and stew over stuff. If you're anything like me, you have conflict with someone or someone does something dumb and, and you know, or sins against it, whatever, something negative happens, it just stews in my mind. You know, it just, it, it's just in there. 
and I, and I have conversations with them. Maybe I'm crazy. I'm going to assume that some of you do this. I'm not going to make you show your hands because then I'll be like, oh, man, did you do that to me? But uh, you're like in the shower and you're having the conversation with this person. You're like, this is what I'd say and that's what they'd say because they're a dirtbag. And, you know, and, and like you're driving. And it just, it just, it wears away at you. It's so poisonous and so toxic. But it's so easy to carry around bitterness and frustration. And one of the reasons is because we just hold people to an impossible standard. We are all struggling broken, sinful people. We're all flawed, every single one of us. And yes, you, for whoever's saying, even me in their head right now, yes, you, we are all that. And we understand that on our own part. Like, we mess up, and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I messed up because I've been struggling with this. But someone else messes up. But we demand perfection out of them for some reason. It's like with my baby, she's nine months old, if I expected her, she, she basically is useless. Like, she can't do anything, right? Uh, if anything, she, she costs productivity in the world, does not increase productivity in the world, okay? And so much so that I can say this candidly without her even understanding. You know, it doesn't matter. She could hear this, and it doesn't, you know. So she doesn't do anything. If I expected her to act like a fully functional adult, how insane would that be? That wouldn't make any sense. If I was like, hey, Avra, Talisi and I are leaving for the week. There's food in the fridge. Uh, you know, you're gross puree things, and, you know, your diapers are in your room, keep yourself changed, uh, you know, keys are on the counter, take care of yourself, that'd be crazy, it'd be insane, but how often do we do that? We do that because we're so much more, we have so much more empathy for ourselves than for other people. We hold people to an impossible standard that we never expect ourselves to live up to. Psychologists call this, and I only know this because Jana's smart and she told me, a combination between what's called a fundamental attribution error and a self-serving bias. So the self-serving bias is when we mess up, we can say, oh, well, it's because of the circumstances I'm going through, it's because of how my parents raised me, it's because this person said that, it's because I didn't have enough sleep and I didn't get coffee, whatever. Our circumstances have defined a glitch. But for other people, when they screw up, well, that's, that's a character flaw, you know? It's like, oh, that person said this? That's because they're a jerk. It's because they're a dirtbag. I can't, you know, when you're having those conversations with them in your head or you're thinking about what happened or what they said, what you're thinking about is, well, I came at it from this angle because of this stuff going on, and yeah, I'm not perfect, but they came at it from this way because their character is flawed. That, that's, that's so nonsensical. That's crazy. And I, I'm not judging you because I do that too. It's crazy. And we're bred in our, in our culture nowadays to just get offended by what people say. Someone says something different than what we think. Someone says something you don't agree with or whatever. And to just take offense. And it is such a poisonous thing to do. We're going to hop over to Luke 6. Uh, and we're going to wrap up with this teaching here from Jesus. We're going to start in verse 27. And this, this uh, teaching from Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. It also shows up in Matthew chapter 5. Um, I chose to go to Luke 6 instead of Matthew 5 for two reasons. One is because uh, when we teach from a gospel, I always go to Matthew because it's my favorite. So maybe you've noticed I'm always in Matthew. Uh, it's by far my favorite. Mark and John come next, and then Luke's like my least favorite. It's still good, but it's my least favorite. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, no, Luke's my favorite. Uh, that's, that's fine. You're wrong, but uh, you can still be. You're welcome to be here. But, um, so anyways, it's been cool this week and two weeks ago to be in Luke. Also, uh, the one in Matthew 5 says that Jesus causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil and also sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. And I just don't, like based on the weather the last two weeks, I just don't think it's helpful for us to talk about any more precipitation coming down. Okay, so uh, we're in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say... 
Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to, do to others as you would have them do to you. This is a crazy teaching. What? Love your enemies? Do good to those who are mean to you? So, so think about people who are just jerks to you. Uh, maybe you actually have literal enemies. For most of us, we probably just avoid them. But Jesus is saying, love them. Do good to them. Someone steal, takes from you, give them more. That's crazy. Like how many of you show up to your house, someone's broken into your house, they're stealing stuff, they run down the street, you're like, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up. We got more. You didn't get everything. That's crazy. If you told me you showed up and someone was robbing you, and you did that, I'd be like, I, I would forget about this. I'd be like, you're an idiot. Call the cops. That's wild. That doesn't make sense. Jesus' teachings don't make sense to us a lot of the times because he calls us to something so much bigger than what just makes sense in our own selfish minds. It says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. I don't, I don't think this is a prescription to like a specific situation. Like Jesus is like, okay, if you were literally in an, this exact situation where, like, where someone slaps you on one cheek, then you need to turn the other cheek and they're gonna slap that one. Like people are like, well, what if it's like a punch, you know? Like do backhands count, you know? Jesus is saying, when someone slaps you on the cheek, here's what's going to happen. I want you to forgive them, but understand, they're probably going to do it again. That person's probably not going to be made perfect just because you let it go and you didn't get mad at them. I mean, if you're married, you know what I'm talking about, if you've been married for a while. You know, it's like you forgive your spouse for something. Do you think, oh, I forgave them for that. They're never going to do that again. <laughs> I see married people like, do, do not look at your spouse right now. <laughs> It's the same stuff every day. You know, how many times have I, forget, have I apologized for the same garbage to Talisee? And she forgives me. And man, like I just, uh, you know, slap, slap, slap. Not literally, okay? <laughs> A lot of trouble. No, that's what she does. Okay. Um, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And then he says, pray for those who mistreat you. This is so key. I think when we pray, we focus on ourselves so much. This is so, to me, this is the key to unlocking all of this. When someone offends me, when, when I have relational problems, I can say, okay, I'll love those who, like, you know, who I'm in conflict with, but it's hard for me to sit in my house and be like, okay, love, love, love like just to think myself into loving them. What I found is so key is to sit down and pray think about the people that you're the maddest at, that you have the most issues with. Sit down and spend time praying for them. And it doesn't mean sit down and be like, God, please help them get better at life. You know, that's, that's not what I'm saying. Sit down and say, God, thank you that you created this person and that you love them and that you died for them. Help me love them more. And what you'll find after you pray that is probably nothing changes. But if you continue to pray that and you continue, when you're thinking about it, when you're angry at that person, when you're frustrated, when you're feeling those feelings of bitterness or anger that you're carrying around, just say, hey, God, Help me out. Sorry that I'm sinning by not forgiving. Man, if you're struggling with forgiveness today and the only thing you take away is that you should go home and spend your week praying for that. I've found that when I'm in conflict with people, that's the most I ever pray for people. I just pray because I've seen it change so much in my life. So if that's the only thing you take away, go home and think of the people that you're upset with and frustrated with and just pray for them for the next week, every day, a few times, every time you think about them, just pray for them. Loving prayers. 
Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. If you love those who love you, Jesus is saying, big deal. That's, that doesn't matter. Everyone does that. He's like, if you're good to those who are good to you, if you lend to those who lend to you, Jesus like, I don't care. That's nothing. He's like, that's not a big deal. Even sinners do. When Jesus says even sinners doing that, do that, he's not just saying everyone. What he's saying is like, think about like the worst people you can think of. Even those people do that. Think of like the most vile, evil people you can think of. Those people would even do. Like, like Hitler, for sure, probably had some friends, and if they were good to him, he was good to them. Even Hitler does that. If your standard of love is Hitler, well, we've got a problem. You know, it's, not, it's just not good enough. It's just, it's just not what Jesus came to. The worst people, he's saying, even terrorists would do that. Even serial killers would do that. Even, like, think of the worst people you can think of. Like, even people who think that the best part of Munchies mix is the pretzels. Even those people. The worst, most vile, sickest people. I am married to one of them. And it is like, <laughs> Twisted. No pun intended. It's crazy. Even those people. Think about the worst people you can think of. They do that. You're not loving if you're good to people who are good to you. Love, uh, forgiveness shows, or love shows its true colors when forgiveness shows up. If you, if you love those who love you, big deal. You're normal. You, you, you might just be struggling with sin. If you love those who are bad to you, if you're willing to just forgive people right away, when people offend you, to just approach that with forgiveness and say, it's all good, I forgive you. I look at you with grace and compassion. I love that person. I want to be reconciled. I will not keep record of that. Man, I don't say that because I'm preaching to myself here. That's when true love shows up. A couple problems with unforgiveness I want to talk about really quickly. One of the first problems, and this is a huge fundamental problem with unforgiveness, is that unforgiveness legitimately is not a word in the English language. Um, you can pull out your phones and fact check me right now if you want, if you got the dictionary app or whatever. But uh, unforgiveness isn't actually a word. You know, like you're writing a sermon like this, you type unforgiveness, it redlines you, you know? It's not a word. But I think it's one of those words that we have to kind of like sugarcoat what we're actually going. Like, you know, you're at small group, it's a lot better at the end, you know, do you need prayer for anything? It's like, yeah, you know, I've been struggling with some unforgiveness, I could use prayer for that. That, that sounds a lot better than, hey, yeah, I, you know, I need prayer. I've been struggling with like some serious feelings of hatred towards someone else. You know, you say that, people are like, get out of our small group, you know? <laughs> we don't want you here. If forgiveness is one of the truest expressions of love, then unforgiveness is one of the truest expressions of the opposite, and that's hatred. And I think we should call it what it is. When you struggle with bitterness and frustration, you let that stew inside of you, it's just hate. And I'm not saying I don't struggle with that, but it's hate. And that's a problem. That's no place in God's kingdom, in the church. Another problem with unforgiveness is unforgiveness is what perpetuates the problem of sin. It gives life to sin. It takes a sin, it takes something negative that someone's done, and it gives it more life. It gives it the opportunity to breed and to spread. It's what makes sin go viral. 
So you can't control whether or not people sin. Like I said earlier, you should call people out on their sins. You should call people out on their struggles and say, hey, you know what? You can do better. I'm not judging you, but man, like, you know, I want to call you on this. I, I think you could work on this. But sinners going to sin. You know, we're sinful people. People are going to sin. They're going to they're mess up. They're going to offend you. They're going to hurt you. They're going to do things you don't like. That's going to happen, and you cannot control that. But what you can control is your response. And when you choose unforgiveness, what you do is you take their sin, and you say, yeah, welcome. Bring it in. Fill my heart with your sin. Fill my heart with your faults and your mistakes. And that's how sin spreads, is that we choose not to forgive each other. And we let people's faults become our faults. We let people's sin issue become our sin issue. We let people's sin issue inspire sin in our own lives. And I like to make up words, so the bottom line here has a very custom Ryan word. It says, don't let their faults be your sin inspiration. That's at least memorable, even if it's cheesy. It's so easy for someone else. Someone might lie to you, and then you could spend the next 20 years being angry about that. I mean, who's worse? Who's, who's the worst sinner in that situation? Forgiveness kills sin. It is where sin comes and dies. It is the graveyard and the burial grounds for sin. People can sin all they want. They can do that. Your forgiveness is where it stops. You can draw a line in the sand and say, this is where sin discontinues its spread. You guys remember email forwards? You know? People like send you an email and it's like, forward this to all your friends. If you forward it to like 37 people within the next three minutes, then you'll, like, you'll find love or you'll get rich or these things or whatever. Um, you guys remember that? It's on social media, but now send this to all, the con- all your contacts and stuff like that. I'll tell you, I'm, not, I'm not judging people who send those out, but I'll tell you, when, if you ever send me that, my inbox is where it comes to die. You know, Those hit my inbox, and they get deleted. They don't get forwarded to anybody. I don't send those to anybody. That's where. Or the, even those posts on social media, it's like, if you love Jesus, you'll share this. And it's like, wow, man, I didn't know salvation was that easy. Uh, those die in my news feed. I'm not judging people who send those. I feel like now people are going to start sending me a lot of email forwards and stuff. But (laughs) They die in my inbox, and that's a choice I make. I delete them. And that's what forgiveness is to sin. Forgiveness is saying, yeah, you screwed up. And even if it's all their fault and you've been perfect, which is usually the situation I find myself in, and I think all of us think that, even if it's all their fault, forgiveness is where it dies. Luke 6.36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that you love us enough to forgive us for all our faults and shortcomings and sins and errors and mistakes. Thank you that you look at us with grace and compassion. Mm. And I'm sorry that we, that we mess up and we abuse that. And we trample your grace sometimes, God. I pray that we would take that gift of forgiveness and grace and that we would be a loving church, a loving community who looks at other people who are struggling with issues and just say, it's okay, I forgive you. Help us be your grace, your forgiveness, and your love in our community, God. We love you so much. Amen.